0: About the other night, when you said you, you don't really make much progress in those meditations, just kind of stay where you're at, especially if you don't have shamatha. Um, in making the transition from those meditations into the anapana meditation, which is not as active or as easily to be engaged in, I wonder if you have anything to say about that. Okay. Is that a question that needs to be repeated? I don't think I can repeat it. <laughs> okay, let me see if I can repeat the question. You are used to doing kinds of meditation that involve an activity on your part, of repeating a mantra or of, of doing a visualization. Correct. And um, I, I think the last part of what you said was has to do with how to remain engaged if you're not active, right? So if I want to, you know, make a switch from doing those meditations to doing the Anapana meditation, and I would feel maybe more dull in the anapana because it's sort of less going on. That's how that's yes. how I feel. Yes, there 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 is. I I see why you feel that way. Right? Yes, you're not as active. And one of the things that we were going to talk about tonight is stillness. And when you're doing something, it creates an additional source of energy for your mind. Now, in in this meditation, (laughs) there is a kind of activity going on, but it's a different kind. It's, uh, it's very much a mental activity. And you'll, you will, you'll get used to the fact that uh, this kind of mental activity actually requires a lot of energy. And you'll learn to raise a lot of energy uh, in order to do it. But there's, a, there's, there's this tendency to dullness that must be overcome first. And that's really, that's really what this is about. The activity, you see, even the activity of repeating a mantra is one that can become automatic after a while. And really the only reason that a visualization can serve as an effective samatha object is that eventually the mind becomes so thoroughly trained in generating that image that uh, it's as though, it, it happens by automatically as well. It's, it's as if it were like the breath and we're happening by itself. So, so even, with those, even with those objects, to be successful, you always have to <coughs> end up at the same place where the activity is the mental activity of observation and cognition, not the mental activity of generating a sound or generating an image. And so, in a sense, using the breath, which is completely automatic, you're sort of jumping ahead to that point where you no longer need to be involved in the generation of the object. The object provides itself. Okay? But we'll talk about the dullness part of it. And before I do, though, are there other questions? Yeah. Yes. I yes, I came in late from the lock because I got into it. Yeah. And you may have addressed this already, but... Um, when you're doing it, was my first walking meditation. Does it mean? And the peripheral beauty of nature becomes central at times. So I stop walking and look, I listen. Is that part of it? Actually, that, that is part of it. Uh, <laughs> and that's the reason that walking outside is, is very powerful. Because you experience the beauty of nature and the world and what it means to be in one of these bodies and be alive. And uh, when you're doing walking meditation, you're going to be aware of there are things that are going to attract your attention. And one of the things that you might like to do is just remember that this process of training your mind means that what you're attending to is what you have intentionally chosen. So when you're doing a walking meditation and you hear the sound of a bird and it's beautiful, you can stop right in mid focus your full attention on the sound. Or if something catches your eye, or it's just some kind other of sensation, something like that. You can just stop, shift your attention from the walking whatever that is and just absorb it and then when you you know you'll have that point where you're you're satisfied and go back to the walking but one of the one of the outcomes of walking meditation that you want to experience is a sense of of joy of experiencing the beauty of of the world and uh, you know I said that uh, the first the first thing you do in walking meditation as in sitting meditation is to come fully into the present to experience the present moment where you could substitute for the word present pleasant experience the pleasant moment because the, the present moment is extremely rich and diverse and there is much of, of beauty and pleasure in it and so part of the practice is discovering that Is becoming aware of that. As a matter of fact, in any moment, the reality that you are in, in any moment, is one that has been selected out of a huge number of potential realities. The amount of sensory information that comes in through your five senses every moment is enormously greater than the small amount that reaches your consciousness. And when two people are in the same situation, and for one, it's a wonderful experience, and for the other one, it's a terrible experience, it's because what has entered consciousness, what they paid attention to, has been entirely different. And so one of the things that comes through walking meditation is a realization and appreciation of that. You will discover that the present moment is so vastly, enormously greater than anything your mind can encompass. And you realize that whatever you are experiencing has been selected. And that if you don't like what's been selected you can always change channels. <laughs> but you, you learn those things. I Yes. Yeah. Perhaps <laughs> not right now, but maybe later on this evening or tomorrow. Do you think you might be able to discuss with us just a little bit of uh, more about the a little bit about the retreat, what you might do with us? A little bit more about, about the retreat, retreat. in retreat yes, March. Yes, I will. I, I, I had the intention of speaking more about the retreat. And I will do that and uh, don't let me forget. <laughs> In the winter I live in southern Arizona and so I walk very early in the morning with a dog and I visit horses because I love the way they spell and come over to me. Is there a certain mantra that you should have when you're walking? A mantra? No. (laughs) The walking could be its own mantra. Finally, gave us the, the Sanskrit equivalent of some of the Pali terms, and there were two terms I couldn't remember that you had said, mm-hmm. and it was in reference to directed and sustained attention. So it was Vitaka and Vachara. Yeah, Vitaka and Vachara. Yes, yeah. and uh, they're very similar. the uh, Sanskrit's Vitaka, and I think the Vachara is the same. Yeah. Yes. More on the, uh, question on the breath. Yes. Uh, I found my breath kind of changing into more of an ujaya breath, like an ocean breath in the, in, in a mouth breath. But it was such a deliberate, it wasn't like a, it just changed all to the ujjaya. Is that something that... What, what, do, you, what do you mean by ocean breath? Ocean breath is like um, when it's sort of, you take a breath into your mouth and it rasps slightly at the back of your throat, you know, like it sounds a little bit like the ocean. Oh, so is there a breath that's making a noise? Yes. Okay. And were you breathing through your mouth? Uh, I was inhaling through my nose and exhaling through my mouth. Okay. Usually, I, this is the first time I've heard of that happening with someone, but it would be because of you're breathing through your mouth. Normally you would breathe in and out through the nose. Anything else? All right. So I wanted to talk a little bit about dullness and pain. I just And let's address dullness first. There is a spectrum response to the energy level of the mind. And at one end of the spectrum of maximum dullness is where you're in deep sleep or coma. The other end of that spectrum is a place that some of you may have experienced at one time or another. It often happens in a life-threatening situation where you're Mind just shifts into high gear. You are aware of every detail of everything that's unfolding around you. It's usually accompanied by a sense of being somehow removed and outside of the situation. But you have crystal clear perception. How many of you have had that experience sometime? So you know what I'm talking about. Okay. So that's the that's the two ends of the spectrum Uh, of of dullness. Zero dullness. maximum goal. We live most of our lives somewhere in the middle. Probably most of us somewhere in the lower half. By comparison with what we're capable of. And those experiences show you what your mind is capable of. as you go through your daily life, the energy level of your mind fluctuates up and down. To the extent that uh, something is interesting or exciting, important, valuable, threatening, whatever, the energy level of your mind will increase somewhat. You will be more alert and aware. And there are other times where I think that important seems to be going on, and your, your energy level of your mind will fall down. Could you, it could become so relaxed that you end up in sort of a spaced-out condition. But you see what I mean. You, you know what it's like. All day long, the energy level of your mind goes up and down, mostly in response to external circumstances. Then, of course, there's one time of the day when what you do is you close your eyes... And you withdraw your attention from all external things. Very much the way you do in meditation. And you go to sleep. Sometimes that happens in meditation. (laughs) And you can see why. It's so similar. You see, what stimulates your mind And what activates your brain normally is this constant influx of sensory information. And then that information gets processed, evaluated in terms of its importance, and whether you need to do anything about it or not. And this is the activity that keeps your, your brain turned on and active, and it keeps your mind energized to whatever level it is. And as I say, it fluctuates up and down. When we sit down to meditate, you're removing most external sources of stimulation. And so the energy level of the mind begins to fall. Not only that, but it's very similar to what you do every day on purpose, when you're planning to go to sleep. And so your mind's also habituated, trained, if you will. You've trained your mind to go to sleep when you do that. And so, this is one of the things that you're going to be inevitably dealing with in meditation. It uh, usually shows up in the third stage uh, where you don't see it coming, but you suddenly find yourself very drowsy. Sometimes you fall asleep and you wake up, you know, the famous Zen lurch. You actually fall asleep as your body sags. Stretches the muscles, r- reflexes jerk you away. <coughs> so it's something that that you will have to deal with, and we call that strong drowsiness. Leads to drowsiness when it first shows up as I say, it's usually pretty strong uh, by the time you notice it. You may have already fallen asleep and then you jerked away. And then after that, you may be aware of a drowsiness. And uh, you may be aware of the sensation of sinking into dullness and sleepiness. That is preceded by a subtler form of government. You know, if... uh, If this is the level that your mind's at when you're not meditating and you're you're just doing things in the world, you begin to meditate, and it slowly, slowly sinks down to a lower energy level. And you're usually not aware of that. And you're not particularly trained to recognize that. And so, if the dullness will get stronger and stronger until finally it reaches a point where it's obvious in the form of drowsiness and sleepiness. And that, as I say, that happens in stage three. So, when that happens, you have to start dealing with dullness. And as a part of your meditation, you're going to have to deal with dullness until you overcome it completely. First. In, in stage three, you just overcome the really strongest form of sleepiness and drowsiness. In stage four, you have to overcome every form of strong dullness. And then in stage five, you overcome the subtle dullness. By the time you finish with stage five, you've trained your mind not to go into dullness. As a matter of fact, you trained your mind in such a way that If this is the energy level of your mind when you sit down to meditate over the course of the next 45 minutes or an hour, it's going to go up. At the very least, it's going to stay the same. It's more likely to increase. So it's a very big difference. And it is a training of your mind. It's not as though you do it. There are things that you do to bring about the training, but... It, it's something that is, once again, happening at a, an unconscious level and you have to you have to train those mechanisms so that when you're sitting down in meditation, your mind knows this is not the same as when you're going to bed at night and going to sleep. It doesn't do the same thing. Now, the way that you train the mind not to go into dullness, is you need to catch it every time it starts to happen. You know, it's, it's just like training kids or dogs. It's exactly the same thing. You have to catch it when it's doing what it's not supposed to. And then you have to correct it firmly. Completely. You know you can't you can't train a child and you can't train a pet if you only use half measures. They just don't get the message. And the same thing's true with training your mind, and training your mind not to go into dullness. As soon as you become aware the dullness is present, you have to use an antidote that is strong enough to bring you out of it completely. Completely. If you don't bring yourself out of it completely, your training is not going to be effective how do you tell that you've brought yourself completely out of dullness? That you return to a state of alert wakefulness that lasts about three to five minutes. If you start to go into dullness again sooner than that, it means you didn't rouse yourself completely. And as a matter of fact, there's a name for that state where you rouse yourself, but then in a short period of time, you back down. It's called sinking. Okay, so you have to recognize sinking, and you have to realize that unless you've energized your mind enough, that the sinking doesn't happen for several minutes, and you're you're not taking advantage of this wonderful opportunity that's arisen. And that is the way to look at dullness, because otherwise, when you're experiencing dullness, it's you're you're, you're going to think of it as a terrible meditation experience, because it's actually—I know you know this—it's actually painful when you pull yourself out of dullness, right? It's unpleasant. Because some part of you just wants to, so. <laughs> and bringing yourself out first. And of course by all of the standards that you would judge your medication, this is not good, I keep falling asleep. So it can lead to frustration, disappointment, all kinds of negative thoughts. But instead of that, whenever you experience dullness, I want you to think of it as a gift, an opportunity, because in this process, you are going to overcome dullness completely the only way that you're going to overcome dullness is by training yourself in the proper way whenever it's available. So when dullness is there, it's, oh good, I've been waiting for a chance to (laughs) remember. Okay? Try to think of it that way. So, you want to rouse yourself enough so that you're going to stay bright and alert for three to five minutes. And uh, do you want to know the physiology of that? Yes. yes. Thank you. Okay. You see, there's two parts of your brain that are interacting, energizing each other. There's the cerebral cortex, the surface of your brain, where all kinds of fun activity takes place. And then in your brain stem is what's called the reticular activating system. And the reticular activating system has these fibers that go up to the cortex and stimulate it so that you're awake. And then, when your cortex is active, processing sensory information, thinking important thoughts, all that sort of stuff, it has fibers that go down to the reticular activating system and stimulate it. And so there's this sort of back and forth loop, and that's what keeps you awake all day. When you go to sleep those two systems are, are no longer stimulating each other and you fall asleep. And you wake up in the morning and start stimulating each other. So when you've slipped into dullness, usually what's happened is the decrease in stimulation of your cortex means that it's no longer stimulating the reticular activating system as strongly. So now the reticular activating system is in turn no longer stimulating the cortex as strongly. And so the cortex is that much more resistant to whatever information is coming into it, and doesn't respond as strongly. And so its energy level falls, and of course that means it stimulates a particular activating system in the mind. So you're in this downward spiral of increasing dullness, decreasing energy level of the mind. When you do something to rouse yourself out of that, when you realize you're dulling, oh, okay, I'll start all over again. When you do that, you'll, you'll set this system back in motion again. But if you set it, if you have activated it enough that now that your cortex has, rele- it has reached sort of its plateau level of normal waking activity, if the dullness returns, it's going to take just that amount of time I mentioned about three to five minutes. For it to lose that, and for the next period of dullness to set in. So this is this is wonderful because this tells you this this is a way of knowing that you've used a strong enough antidote, and if you can't if you haven't succeeded in bringing yourself to a sufficient level of alertness that it can be sustained for several minutes, then you need to use a stronger antidote. You got the idea? You identify it, and then you apply an appropriate antidote. Of course, it's going to take some trial and error to determine how strong an antidote you need. And of course, it's going to take some experience to so get good at recognizing dullness. The earlier you recognize it, the easier it is to overcome. And the longer, you know, the longer it's been going on, the harder it is going to be to rouse yourself from it. Now, when, when the first dullness that you become aware of is a distinct sense of drowsiness, you're going to have to use a really strong antidote. And this afternoon, I introduced you to one of those. Clenching your muscles? I let go of it. You do that several times. And maybe, you did, did you notice an effect it that it happened That breaks you up. There's another one very similar. You can take a deep breath and then let it out slowly against resistance. And you'll have the same effect. It's like you just feel the energy rise when you do that. You can do that several times. And then there's another one where you can tighten up your perineum, tighten it, hold it for several breaths, and then release. And that will also move the energy up. So that's... In terms of the spectrum of different degrees of dullness, And the kinds of antidotes, that's kind of in the middle. Milder antidotes, if if the dullness is not so strong, just expanding your awareness so you're, you're actually taking in external stimuli, sounds, bodily sensations, so on and so forth. That can be enough to energize your mind. If you've caught the dullness early enough, if it's mild enough, opening your eyes Meditating with your eyes open because the light coming into your eyes stimulates the retina and the nerves of the brain. And that, well, that's, that's why I like to sleep in the dark, right? Yeah. So opening your eyes is, is something that will help. And in the most mildest forms of dullness, it can be enough just to engage more fully with the breath, just to to. to bring up the vividness and the intensity of your perception of those sensations. And follow them more closely. That only works with the most subtle form of dullness, though. Because we're talking energy level of the mind here. That's the energy that's responsible for consciousness. And as we talked about last night, if you become too focused on something, it tends to rob consciousness from peripheral awareness and peripheral awareness is playing a really important role in keeping dullness at bay so just just engaging more closely with your meditation object only works in the mildest forms of dullness otherwise it can be the worst thing that you can do because as you zoom in on your meditation object you lose even more peripheral awareness and you crash that much more quickly. But these are the, these are the mildest antidotes. You see, see the progression there. The first one is really internal. You're not increasing any other source of stimulus. You're not increasing any other source of input into conscious awareness. What you're doing is intensifying what's already there. Yeah. Opening your eyes and meditating with your eyes opening is increasing the input. Expanding your awareness to take in more of other kinds of sensations, doing the same thing. It's increasing the input, stimulating the brain, energizing the mind. And then of course there's the muscle flinching and relaxing and deep breathing and tightening of the perineum and all of these these also bring a lot of additional stimulus in, it can bring in enough to bring you back to a state of full alert awareness. Sometimes that's not enough. If that's not enough, stand up and meditate standing up. Standing's a, it's one of the four classic meditation postures. But you'll find it's very difficult but one thing about it is it will make you alert <laughs> so if you need to go ahead in a group setting you have to be very very careful doing this and hopefully it will be a situation where there's enough space between you and whoever is sitting next to you that if you stand up very quietly you won't disturb anybody else But this is a powerful thing to do. Stand up, meditate for a few minutes standing up. You'll know you're completely awake, you're completely aware, and then you can sit down again. The most extreme kind of situation, which probably isn't going to apply unless you're very fatigued physically, uh, you had very little sleep the night before, or something like that, where even standing meditation doesn't seem to be enough, and what you could do is you could go and splash some cold water in your face and try that. That might work. But it may be that your only resolution is to go and have a nap and meditate again after you wake up. <laughs> so that's, that's the spectrum of possibilities that you can use in response to the thoma. Now let me tell you what's going to happen after you've applied a sufficiently strong antidote you're going to feel alert and awake, and you're going to go back to meditating, and then sometime later, the dullness is going to return. So usually when dullness is there, it gives you the opportunity, opportunity to repeat this over and over again. It's like your pet keeps going out of the yard, and you keep pulling it back. It goes out of the yard, keep pulling it back. So that's, and that's fine. That's exactly what, that's all you need to do. Your task is very simple, as soon as you realize there's dullness, do something that's strong enough to bring you out of it for a few minutes, and then whenever it comes back again, you just keep repeating the process. And the cumulative effect of this is eventually you're going to come to the point where dullness is no longer a problem. So that's all there is to it. <laughs> but it is, it's a challenge. And everybody has to deal with it. Now, that's dealing with strong dullness. I mean, subtle Dalmas is a little bit different, but that's strong dullness. Um, <coughs> seems like there's something else I was going to say, but I don't remember what it was right now. So let me just put this in the context of the stages of Samhita. So... When you're in stage three and you're dealing with really strong sleepiness, drowsiness, do whatever you can to bring yourself out of it, and don't worry about it. It's something that comes, and um, it's more than anything else at that stage, the mind's conditioned response to withdrawing attention from external stimuli Closing your eyes, becoming very quiet and silent. And you'll find that if you do, as I said, several times, there will be a last time in which you rouse yourself and it won't come back. And the other thing that you'll notice, if you're paying attention to your own mind in this process, it feels different that time. Mm. There's a different feeling. Have any of you experienced this and know what I'm talking about? you've been dealing with dullness and you keep bringing yourself out of it and then there's that last time and it's, it's a different feeling you, you've reached a new energy level now nobody's experienced that you've experienced that. Okay. that that is something to take note of. of that difference in the way it feels you, you experience that? because as you go along you're going to want to recognize all of the different degrees of dullness that can manifest and remember we're starting from a place that's in the middle of the dullness scale and so when we find ourselves in a place that's a little bit higher on energy higher on the energy end of the scale you want to notice that too. That's part of recognizing dullness, is recognizing when your mind has come to a, a new, higher energy level. Say that again. Okay. okay. What I was saying is that, is that if you consider that your starting place is uh, that, that our normal consciousness is already at a certain level of dullness sort of in the middle of the scale. We can be enormously more alert. And so, of course, we want to practice recognizing as soon as the energy level of the mind starts to fall. But part of that process is also learning to recognize when the mind's at a new, higher energy level. And so when you've been working with dullness and you have that experience of your mind is definitely a higher energy level than it has been before, you want to recognize that as well. That's part. Of, that's a part of the process. Now, strong dullness is preceded by subtle dullness, and there's two different forms of subtle dullness can take: um, progressive subtle dullness and non-progressive subtle dullness. And non-progressive subtle dullness is really a reflection of where we ordinarily are. I mean. you're you're awake, and you stay awake all day. You you fluctuate up and down a little bit. But there are only certain situations and certain times when you'll find yourself sinking deeper and deeper into dullness ordinarily. Right? I'm talking about during your everyday uh, waking life activities. It's very similar in meditation. There... You start off your meditation with a certain degree of dullness, and that level of dullness can be sustained, and it can move up and down a little bit, be a little bit less dull, a little bit more dull, under different circumstances, but it doesn't take you on this snow side. there's a kind of subtle dullness that's progressive subtle dullness, just as the title I've given it says, it's going to get stronger and stronger, Until you're experiencing drowsiness, falling asleep, and so forth. So, when you get to stage four, your focus, in in stage three, you've learned to pull yourself out of the really strong dullness, out of the sleepiness, the drowsiness. But now, in stage four, you want to catch the dullness as soon as it begins to strengthen. In other words, you're going to overcome, you're going to permanently overcome strong dullness by recognizing progressive subtle dullness as soon as it does Make sense to you? yeah. As soon as that progressive dullness is detected, then you, you make the correction and you repeat that as often as necessary so that your mind is trained that it just doesn't do that anymore. And, so the most important thing, you, you've learned all the antidotes, you've practiced all the antidotes in stage three. Now when you're in stage four, the emphasis is recognizing dullness in the very earliest stages. The other thing that happens in stage four, stage four you still have a lot of distraction, you're still prone to gross distraction. And so, if you energize the mind too much, If you overdo it, you're going to find yourself in a state of agitation. Which, basically, what does that mean? That means, here I was meditating, attention on the meditation object, and there was a modest number of subtle distractions in the background that I had to be aware of to keep from becoming gross distractions. You agitate the mind too much, and now you're being overwhelmed by a deluge of subtle distractions and sooner or later, usually sooner, one of them is going to catch you sufficiently off guard it becomes a gross distraction. So, one of the things that happens in this fourth stage is you're, you're trying to recognize progressive subtle dullness whenever it's present you're trying to recognize whenever a subtle distraction is becoming a gross distraction And those two are a balancing act. The subtle dullness that's present is actually going to help you avoid too much distraction. So sometimes you want the sustained subtle dullness, not the progressive subtle dullness. So you have to be able to recognize the degree of dullness that can be sustained and create a level of calmness in your mind which is reflected by how many, how many subtle distractions are vying for your attention at any given time. If it becomes too much, let a little more dullness in. The way that I would suggest you do that subjectively is imagine that this is your meditation object and you're focused on it like this. Step back and relax and look at it. But not quite sometimes. If you do that, you let a little more dullness in and you'll see that the the subtle distractions in the background will become more manageable, easier to spot. So when it starts to become a gross distraction, you can recenter your attention. Refocus your attention strongly enough to keep that distraction from coming in. Once it's there, you can back off again to that place of just a relaxed enough state of observation that you're not agitating the mind. you get the picture that I'm talking about? It's a balancing act. There's all kinds of nice little uh, metaphors and analogies that have been generated. One you've probably heard of tuning the loop, you know, not too tight and not too loose. That's really, that's really what a lot of the stage, stage four is about. Because you're simultaneously trying to overcome gross distraction and strong dullness or permitting subtle distractions and subtle dullness. So not too strong and not too loose. And then you'll get good at it. When you get good at it, you're going to be pretty much immune to strong dullness from that point. There will be those times when you're really fatigued, or if you had a big lunch and you decide to do a meditation uh, in the afternoon where the dullness will come on but it won't be very often and just keep in mind every time you deal with dullness is an opportunity to train yourself up to reinforce that training make it stronger and it is it's, it's quite wonderful to be a meditator who never has to deal with that as anybody who's ever had to deal with it I appreciate. It. It's really nice to get younger, and you get completely younger. Yes. So, um, when you train yourself, when you train your mind to be out of dullness or agitation, that's something that you have to continually maintain, right? It's not like you can say, "Oh, well, I, I'm there now," so. I don't need to meditate anymore, or or like you miss a week of meditation, or you know, you can easily fly back to the lower steps, yes. right? Yeah. <clears throat> what what you're going to find is things are going to happen in your life that set you back, right. and one of the things that can set you back really strongly is that you miss a week of meditation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So those are the kinds of things. Yeah, you're training your mind, and that. As you go along, the training will become stronger and stronger. You will, by the time you reach the eighth stage of the practice, you're not going to have to worry about these things at all anymore. But, say when you're at the sixth stage of the practice, you can still find yourself slipping back to stage four, with strong dullness coming in and gross distractions coming depending on the state of your mind when you sit down and meditate. And those sorts of fluctuations are normal. As you go along, I'd say typically expect yourself to find yourself moving back and forth over several stages, continuing to make progress, you know, but a step forward, a step back, and, you know, going back and forth like that. One of the things when that's happening is to notice what it correlates with in your life. Some things are going to be very obvious but there are things that you're going to find that it correlates with that maybe aren't uh, initially so obvious. Things that you do, things that you eat, ways that you play, all kinds of things like that that are going to affect the quality of your meditation. And of course, that means when you know which things affect your meditation, you're going to have to decide what their priority is as compared to for the quality of your meditation. But it's not a thing where you should say, oh, anything that interferes with my meditation, I better not do that anymore. That's not a good approach. Absolutely it's not. Because any of the problems in meditation, when you deal with them, you're moving a step closer to being totally immune to them. Now that doesn't mean you should deliberately do the things that make your meditation better. <laughs> but you see what I mean. If you, you know, I've I've known people who they only meditate in a soundproof, whiteproof <laughs> cubicle, right? and they're not treating themselves fairly when they do that. You no. Know, the same thing with your life. Yes, there's things in your life that are going to impact your meditation. And some of them are things you may well do better without. But there are some of the things that you might want to keep in your life. It's not a problem. You can, you know, you can deal with the impact that they have on your meditation. Okay? Any questions about dullness? I didn't talk about subtle dullness. I'm leaving that for a moment. Any questions about strong dullness? What to do about it? Okay. Let's see what time it is. So let's talk about pain a little bit, discomfort. It's the nature of the human body that when it is still for very long, it tends to be discomfort. And so when you're sitting in meditation, you can expect a certain amount of discomfort to the dog. First of all, I would recommend that you find the, a meditation posture, a way of sitting. <coughs> Use straps, cushions, whatever, that minimize this. And especially if you have any sort of physical problem. You know, you've got an injured knee or hip or arthritis or something like that. Be kind to yourself. Your body is going to provide, your body and your mind, I should say both, are going to provide more than enough pain. (laughs) So if there's any that you can readily dispense with, through the choice of how you sit and the age you use, do that by all means. Because it's about training your mind, and uh, as I say, there's going to be enough discomfort to deal with anyway. It's it's not going to be a shortage. But what's left is very important, and it's very valuable. Um, In the third stage, You will definitely be experiencing the pain that comes from sitting still. And when that happens, do your best not to move. So long as you can keep your attention on the meditation object and ignore the pain, by that I mean let it be in the background. Keep your focus. It's there in the background. You know it's there. It may be a really strong distraction, but it's still a subtle distraction. It hasn't displaced the meditation object. So long as you can do that, do that. At some point, you will find that pain is drawing your attention too strongly. You cannot keep your attention focused on the meditation object. It just keeps going towards that pain. At that point, take the pain as a meditation object. Forget the breath. Take the pain as a meditation object. There's a very fundamental principle here. It applies to a lot of other things along the way in the meditation practice. We're training the mind. We're training the mind so that where attention rests is where conscious intention has determined that it should. So, when... Your attention is, insists on going someplace in particular, whether it's a pain in your knee or a jackhammer outside the window. You finesse the situation. You say, okay, I'll choose to meditate on the pain in the knee. <laughs> or I'll choose to meditate on the jackhammer outside the window. And you continue your practice on that basis. Okay? So that's what you do with... That's, that's, that's how you deal with the pain when a pain or discomfort I, I say pain, but, you know, it includes other things. Sometimes you can have an itchy nose. Mm-hmm. This itch right here on the side of your nose, you not supposed to move. <laughs> <laughs> There's no way I can pay attention to anything else in this. I mean, meditate on the itch. Okay, so, you focus your attention on the discomfort and see what happens. Uh, there, one of the possibilities as to what's ha- going to happen is you're going to reach a point where you know I'm going to move. I just, you know, I've waited as long as I can, but I know I'm going to move. When you do that, your movement should be completely deliberate decide exactly what you're going to do. For example, if this knee is hurting, you say, okay, I'm going to shift my foot to the outside of the other leg. Do this kind of thing. You decide exactly what you're going to do, the order of the movement, and when you're going to start. So you say to yourself, for example, okay, at the end of the next outgram, I'm going to begin the movement, and I'm going to move my leg. Take the pressure off my knee, And then do it mindfully. Focus your attention fully on the part of the body that you're moving, (coughs) and move it complete the movement and then go back to the meditation. If it was an itch on your nose and you decide when you're going to move your hand you're going to be totally aware as you move your hand totally aware as you touch the place on your skin totally aware as you scratch the itch totally aware that okay, the itch is gone totally aware as you put your hand back wherever you had it before and go back to the meditation. So that's the sequence of events in dealing with pain. Ignore it as long as you can when you can't ignore it, take it as the object. Take it as the object without moving until you have to move and then make your movements completely deliberate and mindful. Now, as to some of the other things that can happen when you take the pain and discomfort as a meditation object, well, there's two main categories of things. One is you achieve a tremendous insight into the nature of suffering. And the other is that the sensation ceases to bother you or goes away entirely. That's the two general categories. Um, When the pain that you deal with in stage three, I said, is almost certainly due to sitting still. The physical discomfort you deal with in stage four may be due to that, but it's also very often pain that's generated by your mind. It has nothing to do with what's happening in your life. So sometimes you'll direct your attention to the pain and you'll focus on it and it'll just disappear. It'll show up somewhere else a little bit later. It's one of the games that your mind can play when it says, I'm tired of this. So, it's one of the things that that, uh, will happen. Sometimes your mind takes an actual sensation that's there, and it magnifies it. So sometimes when you focus your attention on an unpleasant sensation, you'll see through that, and you'll realize that, oh, okay, this is just... yeah, okay, there's a burning sensation where my ankle is against the mat with the weight of my leg on top of it. But hey, you know, that's not really anything that I need. to do. That's not that painful. And so you just go back to your meditation. And you've seen through the mind's attempt to magnify something that's already there and make it into a strong distraction. But some of these pains, and it could even be one like I just described, that has, has a real component to yeah. it. But sometimes what's going to happen is you're going to focus your attention on the pain and you're going to discover the nature of suffering. Let me back up a little bit. When you first focus your attention on a painful sensation, what's going to tend to happen is it's going to get worse. I'll tell you why it's going to tend to get worse. It's because you automatically identify with the pain. It's my pain. I hurt. That's the process that's taking place in your life. So there's a very important thing that you have to learn to do when you take pain as an object, is to get into an objective relationship with the pain. You have to become the detached, observer-investigator of the pain. And the way you do that, you focus your attention on the pain, maybe a pain in your knee. Put your attention there and find the answers to a series of questions. How big is it? Is it getting bigger? Is it getting smaller? Or is it alternately getting bigger and smaller? Is it becoming more intense? Or less intense? Or is it fluctuating in intensity? What is the quality of it? Is it burning? Aching, sharp, so on and so forth. Is it moving? How is it changing? So you become uh, a naturalist of pain, cataloging for yourself the behavior of this particular stasna. This puts you into a very different relationship to the pain than what you normally enter into. It takes a little bit of practice, but you know right away when, when you've succeeded in doing that. Because in the moment that you cease identifying with it, it's immediately easier to deal with. When you enter into an objective relationship of being the observer of the pain rather than I am the pain, you'll have, you'll, okay, I can do this. Whereas a moment before, it was, I don't think I can do this. This guy doesn't know what he's talking about. But then it okay, I think I can do this. So you investigate the pain. And you're in this objective relationship with with it. As you go deeper into it, some of the questions that you can ask yourself, is this one sensation or is this many? And you can dissect it in your mind. And you'll see what it's actually made up of. And then you go a little deeper and you ask yourself, well, of these sensations, what's the one what I'm calling painful. At some point in this process, at some point in this process, you're going to realize that it's not bothering you anywhere near as much as, you, as it was before. Sometimes what happens, as I say, you, sometimes it just evaporates and disappears. Sometimes it just becomes it's just another sensation. It's no big deal. It's nothing that can keep me from returning to my meditation. And sometimes it's still unpleasant. But this is the this is where the really important discovery comes in. Um, my friend Shin and Young has a mathematical equation for this. That suffering equals pain times resistance. <laughs> and when you can recognize that, when you can see that Okay, there's a sensation there. Yeah, it's not pleasant. It's pain. okay. I'm resisting it. okay? So if there's 10 units of pain and you apply ten units of resistance, you got a hundred units of suffering. If you got 10 units of pain and only one unit of resistance, You've only got the 10 units of suffering corresponding to the 10 units of pain. But the most amazing thing is, if you have zero resistance, there's no suffering. It's just what it is. And that's a tremendous insight. That's an insight that will carry over to your understanding of everything. It is an insight that the Buddha taught in the very first sutra, The Turning of the Wheel, when he presented the Four Noble Truths. He didn't present it as as we often present it, as this is the truth of suffering, and this is the truth of the cause of suffering, and this is the truth of the end of suffering, yada, yada, yada. When he presented that, he said, I'm going to tell you something that you have never heard before. From anybody. I'm going to tell you something that's brand new and different. Now, somebody said that and then said, Life is full of suffering. That's new. Desire is the cause of suffering. Yeah, that's supposed to blow my mind. No, what he taught, what he taught in that first sutra is that it's basically what we're talking about here the cause of pain. The cause of suffering, the cause of all of our suffering, is the craving. What is craving? It's wanting something to be different than the way it is. Is that not the essence of it? And in his instruction, he was teaching this not so much as a set of facts, but as a method. He He said, when there is craving present, Let go of the craving. And even if it's only for an instant, the suffering disappears with it. And when that happens, you will realize the truth of the cause of suffering, which then leads to the third truth, which is the permanent cessation of suffering is the permanent cessation of craving. But you only learn that by experiencing that when you can let go of craving. For even a moment that the suffering goes as well. And that's the truth that you have to learn first. But that's exactly, it's, it's this most wonderful and profound insight that the pain you experience in meditation will teach you if you let it. If you, and you know, and you, you probably won't get it the first time or the tenth, but you'll get it eventually. If whenever pain presents itself as an opportunity. And you remember that there's two things going on here. There is a physical sensation and there is my mind's reaction to it. And that the two are different. The Buddha taught this in another sutra where he referred to it as two arrows. He said the worldling, when afflicted by pain, is afflicted by mental suffering as well as though he had been shot with two arrows. When an Aryan is afflicted by a physical pain, there is no need to suffer as a result. And so it's as though there were only one arrow instead of two. So don't don't regard pain as this horrible nuisance little problem Comes along. It's a it's a wonderful teacher. But the nice thing about it is that when you learn to deal with pain in this way, in meditation, you keep practicing in that way. You'll be able to deal with all kinds of pain in your life that way. And there is a stage you come to in meditation where there is no pain. There is no discomfort. It usually happens. Beginning about the seventh stage, definitely by the eighth stage, where you're sitting there and your body feels absolutely deliciously delightful. It feels really good. It may feel as light as a feather, it may feel like it's just this empty shell of of energy that's just got this wonderful quality to it. And the stillness is magnificent, and there's absolutely no desire to move for the first hour, for the second hour, for the third hour. When the time comes that the mind says, okay, it's time to go have supper, I've got to get up, it takes an effort of will to move. And when you move, your legs aren't asleep, your joints don't hurt, you just get up with a spring in your step and you go have supper. That's what you can look forward to. But in the meantime, while the pain is there, it has this wonderful lesson to teach so don't don't pass up the opportunity